eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I know as a fan, a longtime fan that I am, this designated runner thing, man, it just sounds so hokey to me. Uh, How about you? I actually love it. Game time with Boomer Esiason. This week's guest is former MLB catcher and current manager of the Kansas City Royals, Mike Matheny. Presented by Geico. Major League Baseball begins this week. Despite the pandemic, the 60-game season will feature empty seats in the stands and new rules for sure. No one really, really knows what to expect, including today's guest. From 2012 to 2018, he managed the St. Louis Cardinals to consecutive winning seasons. His latest challenge is to transform the young Kansas City Royals into winners. It is my pleasure to welcome Mike Matheny. Mike, it's great to see you this morning. How are you doing? Doing great, Boomer. Thank you. Yeah, I know this is uh, unprecedented times. Let's start with your own personal story. I read where you actually did come down with COVID-19. Take us through that journey, if you will. Well, I, I think like many people, um, kind of innocently enough, we were doing a great job as a family early on of uh, buckling down. And then uh, you let your guard down for a minute. And uh, you, I think you can c- get yourself in a situation to, to where we were exposed in our family. And one of the members had kindly passed that on and uh so fortunately my wife and i had an opportunity to go and we quarantined from everybody we have three grandkids now so we wanted to make sure we were staying away and and it ran its course um you know unfortunately that uh did did kind of have all those symptoms that everybody's talked about but i think now it's it's given me a little bit of um one empathy i think uh for for the fact that that this is real and it's not a lot of fun uh, but we will get through this and the second part of that is I think it's also created a sense of urgency uh, now that we're playing again and, and we're competing, uh, letting guys know that, hey, unfortunately, I, I think you've seen this too, but we're with athletes. Guys think they're 10 feet tall and bulletproof and, and uh, immune to some of the things that are going on in this world. But this is, uh, this is something to pay attention to because it'll move, fa- it'll move fast through a group. Now, I know you have four players that have tested positive for COVID-19. The interesting one to me is Cam Gallagher. Now, he played in a ball game. He played in one of your inner squad games. And the next morning, he came back to the stadium and he tested positive. He's asymptomatic. It completely caught him off guard. Now, what do you say to him in, the, in this situation? It's heightened our awareness. It's heightened our alert that 
just make sure we're following the protocols while we're in the building and while we're on the field, just knowing that there could be a, a little bit of a lag time to when this can be detected. It's a summer camp, they're calling it, not spring training. Uh, this is a totally different situation for everybody involved. You know, you obviously you've managed uh, in St. Louis for all those years. You played uh, as a player throughout uh, Major League Baseball. Have you been through anything quite like this, uh, the unprecedented nature of it? No, and, and I think a lot of it's just uh, how we're framing it right now and, and realize that it's not going to be like anything we've ever been through before. But also it, it's a privilege and an opportunity for us uh, to jump in to try and help not just baseball, not just our, our community here in Kansas City, but but to, to carry the torch for baseball. You know, the only thing very even similar at all was 9-11 Boomer when I was uh, still a player. And I remember thinking that, you know, it doesn't baseball just doesn't seem that important right now with so much going on. But it was amazing how America rallied around the game of baseball and how it did serve as a, as a healing agent and gave us an opportunity to be a light, to bring some normalcy. And hopefully that's what we're going to be able to do as we get back on the field here coming up. And there's definitely a risk here for you, your coaches, the owners, the players, the trainers, everybody involved. Uh, is it a risk worth taking in your eyes? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, and I, I'm, I'm of the belief, too, that we need to go on living, too. And how can we, how can we respect this virus? How can we respect each other? Uh, but also get back to doing what we need to do. You know, Mike, when I played football, I was amazed at some of the things that I heard on the field from other players, player to player, players that were upset with themselves, players that got into it with each other. And some of the language was very colorful, to say the least. Uh, I know that there was a situation for you guys in an inner squad game where all of a sudden you hear a player wide open say what he says. And then you say, I think it's going to be very important for us to pipe in crowd noise for that reason, because we're going to hear everything from the player's perspective, which may not be the most kind thing to be saying or hearing if you're a fan. It could be a problem, whether it's against uh, the, the opposition, even your own teammates. You can hear every single thing that's said. And so to me, we can't take the passion out of the game. We don't want to take the passion out of the game. And passion sometimes comes out in ways that we all don't want it, as you know, in the game of football. Uh, but if, if we can continue to make it look somewhat normal, maybe do something that uh, can, can cover up the noise. And actually, Boomer, uh, I talked to the commissioner's office. We're going to have something that we're going to try today, uh, just a rough file that we can play some almost ambient crowd noise in the background. It, it doesn't need to necessarily have cheers when something goes good for the home team. I don't think that's what we're looking for. I think it's just to protect the guys. What it would have been like had we heard Billy Martin, Lou Pinella, maybe even your friend Tony La Russa arguing with an umpire at home plate with no fans in the stands, we would have heard every word, and that would have just been unbelievable. Yeah, they wouldn't have stayed in many games at all. When Kansas City Royals general manager Dayton Moore hired Mike Matheny to be his manager in 2020, he could point to his seven years of experience managing the Cardinals. However, back when he was hired to replace Tony La Russa with the Cardinals in 2011, the only team he'd ever managed was at Little League. You know, Mike, I was always taught to be the guy who replaces the guy who replaces the guy, not try to be the guy to replace the guy. But yet you, you took on the job and you had a lot of success early on. Uh, what was it like, uh, you know, playing for Tony La Russa and then, you know, talking to him as you were managing the St. Louis Cardinals? Yeah, Tony was and has continued to be a mentor for me and, and being able to play for a Hall of Fame manager. Um, and, and really, when I came along in the early 2000s to play for the Cardinals, it was, it was an opportunity to learn how to win and to win at the highest level and then to kind of 
changed forever the way that I looked about how you how you plan, how you prepare, how you communicate to a club, what the expectations are. I came in right after Tony takes uh, the team to the 2011 World Series. Um, it, it was uh, it was like drinking from a fire hose. Truly, uh, I, I understood the game, uh, but the whole managing uh, position was something I wasn't quite prepared for. And you're, you're talking about massive change. You lose a Hall of Fame manager. You lose Albert Pujols, who had been the best player in all, in all baseball for the previous 10 years. But fortunately, we had we had great leadership uh, on the coaching staff already. We had great leadership when you have players like a Chris Carpenter, uh, like a Yadier Molina that, were, that was ready to kind of take that next level in leadership on the team. You had players that knew how to go about their business, who had won. And really, I, my goal was to, to I'm not going to get in their way. I'll do my piece and try not to be a second-rate version of Tony La Russa, but uh, not forget the many things that he taught me along the way. Did Tony La Russa recommend you for that job? You know, he uh, he spoke even early on, and, and I think as we're ta having this conversation, I think he saw some of the things um, maybe the, in me, and you know, and it's also sometimes you see the guys aren't necessarily the superstar players, and uh, I, I had to grind through the game. I think he saw my passion for the game, and he saw my passion for people, and I think that led him even early on. One of my first couple of years, we were at a, a charity event, and and he introduced me to the crowd as a future major league manager, and. That was, the, that was the first time I heard it, but uh, certainly having his endorsement meant a lot. You know, your story sounds very familiar to me as my college roommate is now the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts, Frank Reich. And Frank was a grinder as a player. He was a backup player most of his career. And a guy who Bill Poley and the great GM of the Buffalo Bills, who then became the GM of the Indianapolis Colts, saw something in Frank that he said, someday this guy is going to be a head coach. And you guys seem very, very similar to me. It's a sense that you have a way to communicate with your players. I'm just wondering, now you have a very young team, as opposed to the team that you had in St. Louis, uh, the experiences in St. Louis, how will they transform to you being a manager for the, uh, the Royals now? Well, uh, it's uh, really, they really are completely different situations, right? You come in, uh, taking over a team that just won the World Series uh, with zero experience whatsoever. And, and now you come into a team that is, is truly on the rise. I, I've said it many times, uh, just how encouraging it is to watch a team that's lost over 100 games the last two years, but to see the culture that still is there. For me, it, there couldn't be a greater challenge to walk into a team that's really, talent-wise, that they're right there. And it's just now do they have the experience that they truly believe in themselves. And so it's trying to help them take their game to another level while we have this influx of new players. It's a, it's a great challenge. Um, and to be honest, you know, where we stand right now in 60 games instead of 162, it, it, it plays really well for a team that's going to, one, have the mental toughness, two, to have the belief in themselves and the talent to, to make a quick sprint and to, to get themselves on that map and be relevant in the game of, of baseball right now. As a gold glove catcher for Tony Larusa, Mike Matheny played in the 2004 World Series where his Cardinals were defeated by the Red Sox. He made it back to the Fall Classic in 2013 when St. Louis again lost to Boston en route to becoming the first manager ever to guide his team to the postseason in each of his first four seasons at the helm. So let's talk first about being there as a player and what that was like and watching Tony La Russa try to manage you guys through the playoffs all the way through uh, the World Series and unfortunately losing it to the Red Sox. And by the way, were they cheating during that one too or no? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, it was the hottest team I've ever seen. They come back from being down 3-0 to the Yankees and you know, we're a team that uh, we led Major League Baseball in, in 100 and 
four or five wins and one of those teams that you just you never forget every time you walk on the field you know you're going to beat somebody it's just by how much and then we roll into to Boston and you find a team that it, it was destined and no matter what we tried it didn't seem to work and they were just playing really well at the right time which is typically the story of, of how a team makes most of the postseason unfortunately we, we didn't play the level that we wanted to and it was greatest team I'd ever been a part of as, as a player uh, and it just gives you that hunger to get back and it was nice uh, to get back as a manager and make a better run at it. Did you learn anything from Tony watching him take you or guide you guys through that and then apply that in 2013? Yeah absolutely I mean every conversation how we did our preparation going into uh, the postseason as a whole uh, the consistency that he would bring we always talk about Tony as, as being a brilliant tactician, but also just how he prepared, how he thought about the game and, and him being there a number of times. And I'll never forget my first meeting with Tony La Russa as a team in, in 2000. And, the team, and they hadn't been in the postseason in a while, but he spoke as if this is where we're going and this is how we're going to get there put a map together and then he said when we get there we've had enough people in this room who have been there that we're going to have a competitive advantage and all of that kind of built up to when it did happen we felt like we were ready you know a 60 game season is going to be a sprint as you said and it could be an advantage for a young team what's your message to your young players now given all that you've known all the experience that you've gathered yeah why not us why not us? And I, and I think there's a few points that we have that, that may really make us relevant. I think this is as urgent of a group as you've ever seen. Um, as we've talked about how to frame all the COVID stuff, I can't tell you how proud I am of this group, of just how positive they've remained. And regardless of what's walked through the door, the new protocols, whatever they are asked of, they've done it and they've done it really well and, and, and without even blinking. And so you talk about a team that stayed urgent all the way through the the quarantine to where when they got there, they're ready to compete. Uh, there's just a toughness, I think, that they're not backing off. You look at the talent we have, you look at the drive, and you look at the, some of those other intangibles. Um, it, it really makes for a special, a special platform for us to do what we think we can do. A man who likes challenges. When Mike Matheny had a lot of early success managing the Cardinals, he published a book, The Matheny Manifesto, that became a national bestseller. Now, prior to the book, you had written a letter to Little League parents because you were a Little League manager in which you told the parents, we're going to sit down and we're going to shut up, essentially, and we're going to enjoy the game and we're going to be good role models. Uh, and that led to your book. So tell me, why did you write the letter? Why did you feel it necessary to write the letter? I was truly trying to give everybody an out because I didn't think that's what they were looking for. But I had we have five kids and I was able to watch the older three kind of walk through this process. And I was amazed at how youth sports had changed so much. Uh, we had competitive hockey players as well as baseball and, and some football. And it just looked like it, it was a different landscape and, and something I didn't really want to be a part of. But I, I listed out, here's what I remember. Here's what I believe and, and what I've even heard from other guys who've made it to the highest level. I think there's some consistencies here. How about consider this? And I wrote this out. I didn't mean for it to be a five-page single-space letter, but I remember sitting in a room reading this to some very successful people and being, uh, kind of getting warm, like, you know what, this isn't going over very well at all. Um, but it did, and, and I think they got to the point of understanding that this just kind of changed the way that we define success for youth sports. And, you know, I was really uh, hesitant after this kind of caught some, some traction. One of the parents sent it out on the Internet, and it did. 
it caught the eye of some people. And next thing you know, I was proposed to do a book. And I had just started managing the last guy on the, world, on the planet that should be writing a book. But then I, I figured, you know, there is a platform. And I do believe that this can help some people. And take a little pressure off maybe some kids. Take a little pressure off parents to think that they have to be the world's greatest, loudest, craziest cheerleader from the sidelines. That, and, and maybe try to, to embrace the relationships that can be built through sports and help understand that if we do reframe to where we see character as the main goal of sports, um, a whole lot of people could probably eliminate some of their problems that they have that are, that are driven through sports. And maybe these kids can uh, truly just fall in love with the game and allow them to do what they want to do when they're a kid to just play. Well, you know what? Well said, well written, and it caught my eye. See, there is a good thing about the internet that it actually gets things out there that should be, uh, I, I think, propagated. So I loved it, and uh, and I appreciate it, and I love the book too, by the way. After Mike Matheny fell out of favor in St. Louis and was fired, he immediately thanked the Cardinals organization and said he'd like another chance to manage. He's gotten it this year with the Kansas City Royals under extraordinary circumstances. And, and Mike, the one thing that I take away after that you were fired, uh, you, you really uh, were thankful to St. Louis, the organization, for the opportunity that they gave you. You sat out a year, and it reminds me a lot of what Mike McCarthy, the former Green Bay Packer coach, did before he took the job in Dallas. Like He went through everything that was going on in the NFL, kind of developed a think tank to relearn what was happening, to see if there were things that he could learn about himself as a head coach, and he could bring it to the Dallas Cowboys. I'm thinking you went down that same path, that you started to look into analytics, that you started to look into different aspects of managing that maybe you did not use in St. Louis. Am I correct? You are, Boomer. And, you know, just trying to figure out, be, a, be an honest evaluator. And, you know, it took me all of two days after uh, I, I was no longer a manager to realize how much I, I enjoyed and how much it was a part of who I was. And, and if I did want a chance to do this again, how can I do this better? And I, had, I know I was going to have some time on my hands. Um, let's jump into some things. And, and it started with some tough conversations to, to let people be raw and real and, and, and evaluate me and to have people that I trusted give me some feedback. And, you know, things came back, whether it was public perception or whether there was some data to support, some realities of things that I needed to do better. And, and I needed to, to kind of grasp where is this game going and how can I how can I be ahead of it? Speaking of analytics, I'm wondering if uh, there are analytical people out there that have figured out this designated runner rule that we may see in the extra innings of Major League Baseball. It's a new rule. It's going to be different. I, I know as a fan, a longtime fan that I am and a traditionalist that I am, I don't like the DH, but I get why we're using it in the National League this year. You're going to be exposed to it now in the American League full time. But uh, this designated runner thing, man, it just sounds so hokey to me. Uh, how about you? I actually love it. Um, and, and there's a couple reasons. One, I'm always trying to protect our players. And, you know, you get into a position where you might end up playing 19, 20 innings and, and you don't have the pitching to cover. Somebody's most likely going to get hurt. That's that's always in the back of my mind not to get one of my players hurt. And, and two, um, my oldest son uh, plays, uh, he played and finished the year last year, AAA with the Red Sox. And I was able to watch a couple of his games for the first time because of my change in jobs. And, and uh, one of his games I went to, I got to see this firsthand and I couldn't believe the buzz that came through the stadium. Uh, you had a, a bunch of people, a couple of people that were talking about leaving. They said, no, we have this extra anything about to happen. It's almost kind of like a shootout in hockey. And, you know, there's strategy that goes along with it as well. But I think you're, you're doing a couple things to, to answer what the call of the fans are. They're, they're tired of baseball taking so long. 
Um, the traditionalists will fight that all day long, and I get that. But it, what we're hearing is that we need to pick up the pace. Part of that is not allowing this to be a six-hour event. So the real question is, are we going to see more bunting? That's what I want to know, because it seems like we don't see any bunting at all. I would think that that would be a big part of this. Is it not? You know what? Analytically, no. And I no. think that's only because, Boomer, as you look through a lineup, <laughs> even my lineup, as I look at it right now, there's probably two guys in that lineup. Uh, so you're talking a small percentage that are guys that you don't necessarily want to swing the bat in that particular point. And a number of these guys that are just sluggers who haven't bunted since the third grade. So, I mean, it is an art. Uh, I think you're going to have a group of guys that will bunt at a high percentage of time, but the odds of them being up in that situation is, is significantly lower. You know, Mike, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on today. And for all of you out there watching, I'm Boomer Esiason, and I'll see you again soon right here on Game Time with best-selling author and Washington Post columnist, John Feinstein. Have a great day, everybody.